Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. This morning with us, um, good to be together. Well, I, I have a confession to make, like I do most Sunday mornings. Seems like there's plenty of stuff to confess all the time. Um, there are many times I don't like people telling me what to do. I, I remember even as a kid, my, my mom had certain rules about where I could ride my bike, and she'd tell me, hey, you can't ride your bike to Taco Bell uh, unless you have permission to go there. And I remember when she told me this, it was like, Taco Bell sounds all the more better now that I'm not allowed to go there. And it was like five miles away, kind of dangerous to go to, but I mean, it was five tacos for a dollar. Like, how can you beat that? So I would journey there a lot. Even, even when I got my driver's license, I remember I'd be driving around and, um, you know, there would be, just like there is this morning, if you came down Lionville Road, there's a road that, there's a sign that says, uh, you know, road closed through traffic only. And I figured I'm always through traffic, right? Like I, I'm here and I need to get there. And so I am through traffic. So if I have a pickup truck or, you know, a really cool, uh, you know, Prius, I'll just go through the construction and get to the other side. I don't like people telling me what to do. Uh, even, even now when I'm around the house and, you know, I'm setting the table or loading the dishwasher and my wife has recommendations on how I could do it better, uh, I will be honest with you, I don't respond in my heart with songs of thanksgiving. I, I just don't like to be told what to do. A lot of, sometimes I appreciate the direction, but a lot of times I don't because I have inside me this spirit of rebellion. And I'm guessing you might as well. I remember when we were at our Bayview school, when our church was meeting there, we had like 100, 150 people, and it fit like 450 to 500 and so what we did is we roped off the last few rows of, of it so that people would sit near the front. And I remember people coming in and like lifting up the rope and going underneath or crying over it. Everyone knew why the rope was there. They just didn't care. They didn't want to be told what to do. If they wanted to sit in the back, they were going to sit in the back. So we just took the rope away because people didn't pay attention to it anyways. We have this spirit of rebellion inside us. I mean, if I were to tell you, hey, uh, that exit door is reserved for Pastor Dan. You're not allowed to go through that exit door. Only I'm allowed to go through that exit door. All of a sudden, for the first time in your life, you want to go through that exit door. And you want to go through it while staring down Pastor Dan and being like, try to stop me, right? Like, try. We have this spirit of rebellion. And it's not only on a horizontal dimension. It's also on a vertical dimension as well. We rebel against God and his word. He commands us things to do, but we don't like what he says, and so we find ways to rationalize why it doesn't apply to us, or we just outright reject it and say, I'm going to do things my way. And what we find out in today's passage is that rebellion amongst the people of God is nothing new. And we learn a lot about why we rebel and what the remedy for rebellion is in the passage today. So let's look together at Numbers chapter 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you or around you, and it's Numbers chapter 14, page 
122 in that red Bible. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back, listen to the sermon as we kicked off our fall sermon series uh, in jo- about Joshua. And so, uh, as we said there, we're, we're going to be in De- uh, numbers a little bit here, and then we're going to shift into Deuteronomy, and we'll eventually get to the book of Joshua. Um, but what we talked about last week a little bit is that we are in an interesting time in our country in which Christians are shifting from being a moral majority to a prophetic minority. And because of that, uh, God is calling us to be strong and courageous, just as he did with Joshua. Uh, And being strong and courageous doesn't mean we isolate and form our holy huddles. It doesn't mean that we post nasty stuff on social media. It means we engage with the culture with truth and love, with gentleness and beauty, showing them that God's ways are the better ways. And so that's kind of the focus as we go through this sermon series. Now, we looked at Numbers chapter 13 last week, and in that chapter, God has brought the people of God to the verge of the promised land. And he has Moses send 12 spies into the promised land uh, to check it out, to do reconnaissance. And it's it's a leader from each of the tribes of Israel. And they come back, and 10 of them, well, they all agree that the land is really good. Uh, that it is as advertised as this land flowing with milk and honey, with figs and grapes and lots of wonderful things. But then there is this problem with the promised land. And, and in the promised land, there is people. There are a lot of people. There are very big people and strong people and well-fortified cities of people. And so when they come back, 10 of the spies give a bad report of the land. And they say to the people, hey, we can't take the land because it, the, the folks are just too big. We can't take it. We're not powerful enough. But then there's the minority report. There's Joshua and Caleb and Aaron and Moses are along with it. And they say, no, yeah, the people are bigger than us, but this is the land that God has promised. He has promised to give it to us. If only we'll be, we will be faithful and take the land. And so now we are at this decision point. The people of God had heard the majority report of, let's not take the land, they're too busy. And the minority report that says, God has promised this to us. Let us go and be faithful and take the land. And the question is, what direction will the people of God go? And we'll see their response here in Numbers chapter 14. We'll start with verses one through four. And just so you know, when we go to the Old Testament, a lot of it is narrative kind of story. So we, we, take, we cover bigger passages And we just kind of break it down as we go through the sermon. So let's just start Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. This is their response to the options of whether to take the promised land or not. Numbers 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we have died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, we understand fear. We understand their fear. It's scary to venture out, to do new things, be adventurous, to take chances. But God, we pray today that you would overcome our fear with faith. 
knowing that you have called us to do great things for you and that we would do it strong and courageously. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is at the heart of our rebellion? Why do we rebel against God? Why is it that um, we, when God tells us to do something, our first kind of inclination is, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to obey God. I want to do things my way. Well, that's kind of what we see here in this passage. We learn a lot about the heart of rebellion in this passage. We have a lot to get through. I think we have uh, five main points. We'll go through them quickly. Normally there's three if you're new here, but, but let's, go, let's just jump in because we got a long way to go. First, we have the cause of our rebellion. Remember, God has promised the land of Canaan to the people of God for centuries, and he has reaffirmed that promise to the people of God as they have come out of Egypt and journeyed through the wilderness to the promised land for the two and a half years. And the question is, uh, will they take it or not? And, and we see here that they are not uh, they are not consumed with faith in God, but rather they are consumed by fear of the people that are in the land. In fact, they say some really absurd things, as fear often makes us do. They say things like, man, it would have been better if we died in the wilderness. It's like, really? That would have been better than trying to take the promised land for you and for your children? They say, you know what? We shouldn't. Let's just go back to Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. Let's go back to bondage. Let's go back to the place where they were slaughtering our children at birth. Fear makes us do very irrational things. Fear keeps us from trusting the truths that God puts before us. Fear keeps us from taking hold of the promises that God has given to us. Let's look at verse 5 and 6. Actually, we'll read down through verse, uh, through verse 9 here. Verse 5. It says that Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. This is a sign of grief, of sadness, of righteous anger. Verse 7, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel. Do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land. For they are bread for us. They crumble. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. And then here is the exhortation. Do not Fear them. Joshua knew that the reason why they were not being faithful in taking the promised land is because they were afraid. More specifically, they were afraid of the people of the land. According to Joshua here, rebelling against the Lord and being afraid of people are synonymous with one another. They are linked to one another, that if we are afraid of others, then we are rebelling against the Lord, that we are not trusting the promises of the Lord, and that it keeps us from following the commands of the Lord. You know, it's been noted that people's number one fear, the most pervasive fear, is the fear of public speaking, and their number two fear is death. Uh, one comedian notes that at a funeral, people would rather be in the casket than at the podium speaking. That's how fear works. It's crazy and it's 
irrational. But the reason why people are so afraid of public speaking is because they know that everyone is looking at them. They know that everyone is critiquing them, noticing their flaws. Now, not everyone is called to public speaking for sure. But I think many shrink back from speaking publicly because they allow their fear of men to override faith in the Lord. This is seen throughout our lives. You know, I know when I was in my teens and my 20s, and it's still somewhat true today, but specifically that I was so afraid of what other people thought of me. Did other, did other people think I was attractive? Did they think I was cool? Did they think I was someone that they wanted to hang out with? And because of those fears, instead of pursuing faithfulness to God, I was consumed with trying to perform for others and look good for other people. A long time ago, I surveyed the congregation about their biggest barriers to sharing Jesus with others. And I shared these barriers, but their number one fear was a fear of rejection. It's a fear of man, a fear of people. For me, I would say one of my greatest fears of people is in the realm of conflict. I, I, I'm happy when people have an issue with me and come talk to me. I want them to do that. But for me, it's more when I have an issue with someone else. I don't want to go talk to them because I'm afraid of how they will respond. And so you see, a fear of people keeps us from being faithful to God. But there's also another fear at play here that's making them rebel against God. You've probably heard of the acronym FOMO, fear of missing out, right? And you see, even in this passage, they're saying, you know, taking God's path, going God's direction, that's not going to be good. That's going to be misery. Let's go to the wilderness. Let's go to Egypt. That will be a better life for us. And so there's this fear that we have that if we follow God's calling, if we follow God's commands, it will bring misery. But really, it brings joy and it brings life because God's ways are the good ways. It is the good life to be obedient to God. And so let me ask, where, where in your life does the fear of man or the fear of missing out seem to overcome your faithfulness to God. Maybe it's in the area of conflict or evangelism or public speaking. Maybe it's in the area of financial faithfulness to God or fear of losing your job if you're doing things God ways. Maybe you're afraid to give up your sin because you don't think God can satisfy your soul. The cause of our rebellion is a misplaced fear. Instead of fearing the Lord and being reverenced towards him, we are afraid of people and afraid that God's ways are not the best ways. Not only do we see the cause of fear, we also see a, a cure for that fear, a cure of our rebellion. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me. He continues, he says, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meetings to all the people of Israel. I don't know if the glory of the Lord was a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud or whatever it was, but this glory shined brightly to rescue those who were being faithful to the Lord. Verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? And then here's the key. In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. First off, notice how personal this is to the Lord. The rejection of the land is not just a rejection of the land. It is a rejection of God himself. So he says, why do they despise me? But then at the end of verse 11, God says what makes it so atrocious, the rebellion, 
is that they have already seen and experienced the wonders and the signs of the power of God. I mean, you've either read the Old Testament, you've probably seen the movie, The Ten Commandments. They have experienced God turning water into blood. They experienced God overcoming the land of Egypt with locusts and with frogs and with hail. They've experienced God bringing darkness over the land of, of, of killing the livestock of the Egyptians while remaining, keeping theirs alive. They saw the Lord lead them through the Red Sea and then crush the Egyptian army underneath. And they, they had God leading them by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. They had experienced God providing for them water through a dry rock and manna from heaven every single morning. They'd experienced over the past 30 months the power and the presence of God in supernatural ways. But they had forgotten about it. They had forgotten all that the Lord had done in their life. They had forgotten his power, his strength, and they doubted that he could take them to the promised land. There's actually a parallel passage of this event in Deuteronomy 1, and it's Moses talking. It will be on the screen. It says this, Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he, the Lord, did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen, where you've observed, witnessed, experienced, how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. I love that imagery. All the way that you went until you came to this place. And so how do we overcome our fears? How do we overcome our rebellion? It's by remembering all that God has done for us. I was talking to a woman this week who is going to be having some fairly major surgery, and understandably, she has a little bit of anxiety about it, but she also seemed fairly calm. And so I asked her, like, what, how are you feeling about this? She's like, oh, I'm actually feeling pretty confident in it. And I, I asked her a little bit more, like, why do you feel confident about this? And she said, well, I, this guy actually did surgery on me several months ago, and it went very well. It was a really good surgery. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And she said, but also, he's also rated one of the top 100 surgeons in America, which I'm really curious how they figure that out. If they have like a, you know, a, a reality TV show where they all do surgery and they rate it or something like that, I don't know. But, but he's top 100 surgeons. So all of these people have had really good experiences with this surgeon. So even though I'm a little bit anxious, I have a calm because I have confidence in the surgeon and all that he has done before, both for me and for other people. See, God calls us to have faith in fearful situations, but he does not call us to a blind faith. He calls us, when, when he's calling us to be obedient, he's calling us to remember how he has delivered us out of the slavery of our sin. Hey, he's brought us from death to life and how he has carried us like a father carries his son every day of our life and has provided for all of our needs. If you need courage to take Canaan, remember what God has done in Egypt. The cure for our fear that leads to rebellion is remembering the faithfulness of God throughout all of your life. So we have the cause of our rebellion is fear, fear of man, fear of missing out on the good life. We have the cure for our rebellion, which is remembering the faithfulness of God to us. Third, we have the clemency of our rebellion. Now, clemency isn't a word that we use a whole lot, but it means mercy or leniency or forgiveness. It usually refers 
to an executive uh, granting a pardon, such as a president or a governor who pardoned someone that had committed a crime. Look at verse 12 with me. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. He says, I will strike them with pestilence. That's the same thing he did in Egypt. And disinherit them, remove the promised land from them. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater, greater and mightier than they. And so what God is saying here is I'm going to wipe them out and I'm gonna start over with you, Moses, okay? Now, now if you're thinking that seems a bit severe of a punishment for these people, uh, just go back and read about their journey from Egypt to the promised land. God had delivered them with these miracles and signs and the way that they thanked him was by grumbling and complaining the entire time. They even made a golden calf to worship in place of the Lord God. They had disobeyed the Lord all along the way. They had rebelled against the Lord all along the way. God would have not been irrational to punish them, to put them to death. It's what they were due. In fact, it was past due for them. Verse 13, it continues. It says, but Moses, who will act as a mediator here between Israel and the Lord, Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, if you wipe them out, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he was killed them in the wilderness. Verse 17 and 18. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Do you notice here, as Moses is petitioning for the people of God, that Moses does not defend their actions. He doesn't say, you know what? They're actually a pretty good people. They're all right. They're just a little bit scared. He does none of that. Moses knows that they deserve to be put to death. They just tried to stone Moses to death. They deserve death. Moses makes this petition for the glory of the Lord that the whole world would know how glorious he is. And he's petitioning him to, to, to utilize his power in the most glorious way possible, which is to show forth his steadfast love, his forgiveness of sins, to grant them clemency. Verse 19 and 20, he says, please pardon the iniquity of this people. Again, not according to their goodness, according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. In other words, Lord, we know you have done this again and again and again and again in their rebellion. You have granted them forgiveness. I'm petitioning you to do it again. Verse 20, then the Lord said, and this is the beautiful words of clemency. I have pardoned according to your word. There's a story, and I've, I've shared this before, but I love this story of a man who had uh, 
had done something worthy of death uh, under Napoleon. And, and uh, his mother comes to Napoleon and she asks uh, Napoleon to pardon her son. And Napoleon says that he has committed this crime twice and deserves to die. And she replies and says, I'm not asking for justice. I'm asking for mercy. She was petitioning on his behalf. She was mediating. And, and Napoleon says, but he doesn't deserve it. And she says, I know he doesn't deserve justice. That's why I'm asking for mercy. And so Napoleon responds, well, then mercy I shall have. And he spares the woman's son. I, I don't know if these stories sound familiar to you, but just to recap what we've seen, the people have sinned persistently and greatly against the Lord. Moses, acting as a mediator, asked God to display his power and might by forgiving their sin and showing his steadfast love to them. And the Lord says, because of your words, Moses, because of you, mediator, I will forgive them. I will pardon them. Does that story sound familiar? Friends, you and I have also sinned against God. We have sinned against him repeatedly. We have sinned against him heinously. And because of our sin, the Bible tells us that we deserve death. Romans says the wages of sin is death. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are children of wrath. This is what we deserve. God would be completely just of removing heaven from us. But the good news is, we have a greater mediator than Moses, a greater mediator than our moms. Our great mediator is the Lord Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2 says it this way, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Not only is he mediator, but he is also the ransom that mediates us to God. You know, Moses says something really interesting in his petition. Look back at verse 18 with me. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but, but he will by no means clear the guilty. This seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? How can God forgive the guilty, but not clear the guilty. It doesn't make sense. How can he forgive sin but also punish sin? Well, it doesn't make sense until we get to the cross because at the cross takes on all of our rebellion, all of our misplaced fear, all of our sin, and he pays for that sin in full so that we can be recipients of the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the clemency of God. And so this is the good news of the gospel right here in the book of Numbers that we, because of a mediator, are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. So we've seen the cause of our rebellion, which is fear. The cure of our rebellion is to remember how God has been faithful all of our life, trust his record, the clemency of our rebellion, that God forgives us through our mediator, Jesus Christ. Third, we see the consequences of our rebellion. Verse 21 says, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That was Moses' petition. That's what he wanted, that God's glory would fill the earth. Verse 22, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice, 
shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. He mentions 10 times. That could be the 10 spies that said, don't take the land or just saying all the times that you have rebelled against me. Verse 24 through verse 28 says, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and I love this, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Now, since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel, which they grumbled against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do. And so do you remember what they wanted? Do you remember what they wished for back at the beginning of the chapter? They wish to go perish in the wilderness and God is going to give them exactly what they asked for. Verse 29, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upwards, which means those that were eligible to fight in the army who had refused to take the promised land. Those 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. See, just because there is a forgiveness of sins from God, it does not mean there are no consequences for their sin. The consequences of their sin and their rebellion is that they will wander in the wilderness and not enter the promised land of Canaan. Continuing on, verse 31 through 33. But you little ones, who you said would become a prey, you remember they said if we take them in promised land, they're all gonna be killed said, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. And so what we see here is not only does their sin have consequences for themselves, but he says, these will be consequences on your children as well. That for 40 years, they will have to be shepherds in the wilderness. For 40 years, they will not be able to experience the promised land because of your sin. Verse 34, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will, will I do to all the wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end and there they shall die. And so for two and a half years, they wandered in the wilderness. They came to the promised land. They decided not to take it and they are distraught and overwhelmed by this thought of wandering in the wilderness. And yet God says, for 40 years, you are going to wander in the wilderness before you enter into the land Verse 36 through 39. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Similar judgment that he had on the Egyptians. Verse 38. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive. 
When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. God had forgiven their sin, but there were still consequences to their sin. The same is true for us today, Christian. When you sin, God grants forgiveness for your sin, but there is still consequences for your sin. I have a friend who sent me a video clip of his of the worship service last week. He goes to another church here in town and he was sharing his testimony. And part of his testimony is that he grew up in rural Iowa and his dad was a pastor at a country church. And because he was homeschooled, all of his friends, all of his community was there at that church. It was his life and he loved it and it was great. But when he turned 13 years old, it was exposed that his dad was having affairs. And because of this, his father, rightly so, was fired from his position. And because it was so widespread and so destructive, the church also asked his wife and children to leave as well. It ended up in a divorce. And and because of it, uh, my friend and his family were in a life of poverty, uh, so much so that they couldn't even afford food at times. And yet he saw how the Lord had provided for him, how they got two free shopping carts of food because they won some prize at the grocery store that they didn't even know that they were enrolled in, how people had left groceries on their front porch to provide for them. And so even though they were suffering the consequences of their father's sin, they were also experiencing the grace of God in the midst of it. But here, if you need a motivation to put sin to death in your life, to put hidden sin to death in your life, Here is one more, is that while God will forgive you, Christian, there are consequences for your sin, not only for you, but also for your children. And so those are the consequences of our rebellion. The final is the continuation of our rebellion. Verse 40 through 45, we'll try to go quick here. It says, and they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, here we are, we will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that will not succeed? God just said, you need to go into the wilderness for 37 and a half years. And they said, nope, we're gonna go and try to take the promised land on our own. Verse 42, do not go up for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned Back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. Verse 44, but they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. What do we see? at the end of this chapter. It's not the happiest chapter in the Bible. What we see is that there is more sin, more rebellion, more consequences. But as we read on to the next chapter, we see there is more grace. Because as you go into the next chapter, God continues to lay out the sacrificial system, the means by which people would atone for their sins, pointing forward to the ultimate atonement, the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, which would clear us of all of our sins. You know, every week we have a liturgy in our worship service. I don't know if you know this, but if you look here, you'll see there's a call to worship, then there's an adoration, praising God for who he is. But then we have a confession of sin because 
We know from our own experience that as much as we repent to the Lord and we seek to be faithful to the Lord, there is a continuation of sin and rebellion within all of us. That there are times throughout the week where we fall short of the standard of God and the glory of God. And so we come to repent of our sin on a weekly basis. But more than that, there's always after that an assurance of pardon. An assurance of pardon for God's people who come and confess their sins before the Lord. 1 John 1 says it this way. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me end with this. In 2018, there was a megachurch pastor, if I said his name, many of you know it, but he said that Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from our faith, that we need to really just focus on the New Testament. But friends, we should not do that because the Old Testament was Uh, Jesus loved the Old Testament. He quoted the Old Testament all the time. But also we shouldn't do that because the story in Joshua, the story of Israel is our story. And not only is it our story, but as we read of our story and their story, we also read about God's story. When we go through Numbers chapter 14, we are reminded of our own rebellion, our own fear of man and the consequences of our rebellion, what we deserve. But we are also told of the mercy of God, the grace of God, the unfailing love of God who chases rebels down, who hitches us to himself for better or for worse for all eternity. Our God is an awesome God. He is a holy God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving our iniquity and transgressions and rebellion time and time and time again through our one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful that you do not give up on your people, that you continue to pour out love and forgiveness upon us, even though we screw up time and time again, that, that we cannot out your love, that we cannot out your forgiveness, that we cannot out your grace. Pray, Lord, that we would grow in godliness, because your ways are the best ways. Your commands are the good life because there are consequences when we don't follow and because it is pleasing and glorifying to you. Help us to grow in strength, grow in courage, grow in obedience for your glory and for our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we turn to the table, we are reminded that to atone for our sin, there is a need for sacrifice. And the sacrifice that God has provided is our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're repentant of your sin and your rebellion, and you are trusting in Jesus for your salvation, if you have been baptized and made a profession of faith and been admitted to this table by a leadership of a gospel preaching church that says yes and amen, this belongs to you, we encourage you to come and to be nourished with a heart of repentance, seeking to follow God more closely with all of your heart. But if that doesn't describe you, we're so glad you're here today. We ask that you come talk to me or one of our pastors. We'd love to talk to you more about what it means to trust in Christ and to come to his table as a worthy participant. We'll have several elders and deacons set throughout the sanctuary, small group leaders. When you're ready, please go take the elements, bring it back to your seat, and partake together as the body of Christ.